Listen, back in uh, 2011, you may remember this, a group of men and women were persuaded by the Bible teacher and radio personality, Harold Camping, that the end of the world was near. And they set themselves out to prepare. Uh, According to Harold Camping, Jesus Christ was set to return to earth to judge sinners and to rapture his people on May 11th. Oh, actually, I think that's wrong. May 21st, 2011. And uh, his followers made some pretty radical life changes to get ready. Uh, National Public Radio had a segment on it that I remember hearing in 2011. And so I dug it up this week. There was a girl, Adrian Martinez, who was 27 years old, was just about to enter medical school when she and her husband Joel decided to leave everything behind and move with their infant daughter to a rental house in Orlando. And this is what Joel said about their decision. You know, you think about retirement and stuff like that. What's the point of having some money just sitting there? We budgeted everything so that on May 21st, we won't have anything left. I guess it's obvious to you, Harold Camping was wrong. And uh, when they followed up with him, they asked him, you know, hey, look, you said he was coming back and he didn't. And he said, yeah, you know, I've had a pretty rough weekend, which is, uh, which is a, a, an understatement, I think. Uh, but the story about Harold Camping really highlights this point. That when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ from heaven to earth, there's a lot of confusion out there. Around the time that Harold Camping was persuading these people of Christ's return, uh, the Pew Research Center found that 47% of American Christians believed that Jesus would return by 2050. But last month, the same organization, Pew, released a new study that found 14% of Americans overall believe that Jesus will return to earth someday. So um, there's lots of confusion out there. Is Jesus coming back? If so, when? Soon, relatively soon, maybe someday in the far distant future? I don't know. Lots of people aren't convinced, and the rest of them are confused. I wonder where you stand on that question. Have you thought about it lately? Jesus Christ coming back. I know you wish you would, you know. If they're not going to forgive student loans, Lord Jesus, come quickly, you know. (laughs) Save us from it. I don't know. Where do you stand? Do you have confidence that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth someday? Are you uncertain about it? Is it cloudy? Are you confused? I hope this morning we're going to work our way through this passage and God is going to shine his light into whatever cloudiness there is in your mind and heart. See, confusion about Jesus' return is detrimental to your faith. It will lead you to a hopeless life. But when you're confident in Christ's second coming, you can face life's toughest challenges with hope. You get that? When you are confident of Christ's second coming, you can face life's toughest challenges with hope. And that's certainly what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in 1 Thessalonians 4 in the passage that David read for us. See, Paul had founded the church in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. It's a crazy story. You should read it this afternoon in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul had been run out of Philippi and uh, found himself in Thessalonica and uh, starts preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And for three consecutive Sabbath days, uh, Luke tells us in Acts 17, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 
And according to his Holy Spirit anointed preaching, many people believed, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And it was such an amazing turn to Christ that his opponents in the city roused up a mob and they began a riot. And uh, they brought some of the new Christians, particularly a man named Jason, before the authorities. And they charged and they said, these men who've upset the whole world have come here also, proclaiming that there is another king and his name is Jesus. And as a result, Paul and Silas had to get out of town quick. And those two weeks of ministry were cut short. And he left the church in their seed form with the basics of their faith, not yet teased out through the practical experiences of life in a broken world. And so, like David said, Paul sat down to write them a letter. He ends up in Athens, and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, and Timothy spends some time with the believers and then comes back to Paul bringing a report and a letter, apparently, from the Thessalonians. And so Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is his response to Timothy's report and the Thessalonians' questions. And they're big questions. And they're the kind of questions that make pastors sweat. And they get the text back, hey, pastor, can we sit down? i got some questions I want to ask you. And you start racking your brain thinking about what theological or ethical conundrum is about to be laid at my feet. i got no clue. And i got to think that that was the case for Paul because he says, now, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He picks up the conversation midstream. They've asked him something like, hey, Paul, what about those who've fallen asleep? And he says, we don't want you to be informed about those who have fallen asleep so that you grieve as the rest do without hope. You see, Paul knew what you and I know. That confusion about Christ's second coming jeopardizes hope. Confusion about Christ's second coming jeopardizes hope. That's what the Thessalonians are wrestling with. We don't know the exact circumstances that led to their question and the response that Paul gave to it, but apparently, if you stitch it all together, between Paul's two weeks in Thessalonica and Timothy's return from Athens to Thessalonica, some beloved members of the church family had passed away. And while Paul was there, he had taught the church to look forward to the day when Christ returned, and they were doing that. But now that their friends were gone, they're left to wonder, but what about those who've died before he comes? How do they fit into his plan return? And so Paul aims to set the record straight, to clear up the confusion to bring clarity to their questions. You see, I think this is the great need of our day. Surely we're like the Thessalonians who knew the basics. Paul spent three weeks in the synagogue reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And you've got to believe, knowing the kind of ministry Paul performed in other places, that he nailed the basics of the Christian faith. He'd persuaded them that Jesus was the Christ, Son of God in human flesh, who came to earth to live a sinless life, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to die a sacrificial death in the place of sinners, and that after he was buried in his tomb, God raised him from the grave, declaring him the rightful king and vindicating him before the world. And then Jesus ascended into heaven, where he sits at God's right hand, and someday he's coming Again, we know that. That's the basics. But what happens when life blows up? 
What happens when theology and doctrine is set on the shelf of our mind and not teased out in the practicalities of life? How do we bring our theology of Christ's return to bear on the deep reality of our grief? That's the question they're asking. And because they don't have the resources to answer it on their own, they're grieving like non-believers. Like this life is all there is. Like there's no hope beyond the grave. They're living a hopeless life. I mean, this means they hadn't taken personal possession of what Jesus had died to give them. Hope. This is like standard New Testament theology. In the pages of Scripture reaffirmed over and over and over that Christians have hope. This hope is not wishful thinking. It's not good vibes about the future, just putting it out there for the universe and hoping something comes back in return. The Christian's hope is confidence. It's confident expectation that God is going to come through and do exactly what he said he was going to do. And whether you're looking at Paul's letters or Peter's letters or John's letters or even the little tiny letter of Jude, it's ripped throughout the New Testament. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, Paul says it here in chapter 4. We're going to get to it here in a second in verses 14 and following. He also has a lot to say about it in 1 Corinthians 15, but the Thessalonians don't know that. They're living a hopeless life, grieving just like the rest. The fear of death that Pastor Jerry preached about a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus came to free us from, still hung over their heads. And because of that, the confusion about Christ's second coming jeopardized their hope. You know, they're kind of like this man I read about this week, who back in the day of the gold rush, moved out west, hoping to strike it rich. So he got to Colorado, and he made his claim, and he got to work with a pick and a shovel and a wheelbarrow. And after a few weeks of working, he finally struck gold. Enough gold, in fact, that he had high hopes for what his claim might produce. And so he covered everything up and quietly left town and went back to Maryland, where he was from, and told all his family and friends about this great treasure that he discovered. And he asked them, would you like to invest in my claim? And so his family and friends gathered up their money and they gave it to him. And with that money, he purchased the machinery that would allow him to pull up the gold ore from the ground more quickly. And so it would cause a return on their investment to happen fast. And so he got the machinery, put it on the claim, and got to work. Pulled up a full truckload of gold ore and sent it off to the smelter, who told him, man, this is one of the heaviest loads of gold I've seen ever. It turns out the man had struck it rich. He'd started doing the calculations that if he just pulled a few more loads like this out of the ground, he could pay off all his debts, and he was going to be stinking rich. But I bet you can guess what happened. He went back to work, and all of a sudden, that vein of gold that he thought he'd found was gone. And after a few weeks of fruitless labor, he sold the machinery for scrap to a, drunk, a junk man. The junk man came to receive the machinery and starts looking around and thinks, hey, what do I have to lose? 
let me get an expert out here to examine this mine. And so he called a mining engineer who looked at what the man had left behind, and he said, hey, listen, I think the guy you bought this from was confused. He didn't have the information about fault lines. And I think if you just go three feet farther, you'll find the gold. And that's exactly what the man did. He dug three more feet, and there it was, the gold ore that the man had left behind. The junk man made millions off of it and gives us a wonderful story to think about. That I think our hope is a lot like the gold that that man left in the mine. That had he only pushed a little farther, he would have found untold riches. And if we'll think about Christ's second coming, I'm telling you, there is a treasure trove of hope available for us. But because life is difficult and things are challenging and it seems to take a lot of work, we're likely to give up too soon. And because of that, we look to the hope offered to us by the world, kind of memorializing that famous bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. Like Thessalonians, we end up finding hope in the wrong things. We, we look to the world and say, hey, this life is all there is, so I'm going to pursue power or I'm going to pursue fame or I'm going to pursue wealth. And none of it's lasting because there is more to life. The hope Jesus offers us is better. And so give up the confusion about Christ's second coming. There's hope available for you. And Paul gets into it in verses 14 to 18. He says there's confidence. Confidence in Christ's second coming instills hope and comfort. But where does that hope and comfort come from? Where do we find confidence in the second coming? And Paul gives us three things. So I want to work through them one by one. The first one is in verse 14. Paul says we find confidence in Christ's second coming in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 14 with me. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul points to Jesus' resurrection as the first foundation of the confidence we have in his second coming. I mean, the Thessalonians had already learned it. Paul had been there with them, persuading them from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. The resurrection, he says, is the linchpin of the gospel. So we know they knew that Jesus Christ was raised. And so Paul draws on that knowledge and says, y'all know this. You know Jesus Christ was raised. Why would you be worried that your friends and family who have passed away would miss out on the good things God has in store for those who love Him. Paul draws on that knowledge to drive them back to their hope. And this is that New Testament theology we were talking about. The living hope that God has caused us to receive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's what John talks about. Beloved, we are children of God, yet the world does not see us as we are. But when we see Him, we will be like he is. It's what Jude talks about at the end of his letter in his doxology. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Why don't you turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 with me? 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage you should know as the resurrection passage. And whenever you're concerned with your life, or a friend asks you why you believe the resurrection, you go to 1 Corinthians 15. But look at verse 20. Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Listen, Paul teaches us to root our confidence in Christ's second coming in his resurrection from the dead. And to find our hope in the fact that he promises to give resurrection life just like he already possesses to all who are his. To every man, woman, and child who trusts in Jesus as the Christ, the one to save them from their sins, he promises to give them eternal life. That is the basis of our confidence and the source of our hope. We're confident that because Jesus is raised from the dead, when he returns, he will bring with him the souls of those who've departed, and he will reunite them with a resurrection body. That's, that's hopeful to me. That stirs me up and gives me hope for the future. But there's something else, not just the resurrection of Jesus, but Paul says the teaching of Jesus gives us confidence in his second coming. That's what he says in verse 15 to 17, if you want to look back in 1 Thessalonians 4 with me. He says, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. He's thinking about these Thessalonians. He says, church, I see you're grieving. I see you're broken. I see you're devastated by the loss of the people you love. But think about what the Lord Jesus taught us. Think about it from the master's mouth. He's told us what to think. If you're looking for an exact quotation of where Paul gets this, you're not going to find it. But I'm convinced after studying it this week that what Paul's talking about is the main thrust of Jesus' teaching about the end times. And especially that which is contained in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. We're going to get to Mark 13 this summer and I'm going to preach a whole sermon series on the return of Christ. I'm going to call it the return of the king. So this is an appetizer for that uh, in-depth study we'll do later. But back in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples what to expect at the end of the world. And I want you just to listen to this, or maybe even close your eyes and allow the imagery to fill up your sanctified imagination. All right, listen, this is Matthew chapter 24. Are you going to do that? Are you going to close your eyes and put your thinking hat on? I think you can do it. I believe in you. Matthew 24, 29, immediately... After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. 
That's the words of Jesus. He says that someday, soon, He's coming back on the clouds of heaven and His angels will gather His people from every corner of the globe. If you take Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and overlay them with 1 Thessalonians 4, you get some common features that stick up above the surface. Sometime in the future, Jesus Christ will come again to earth. And the event that will spark His coming is not the election of some boogeyman president. It's not the invasion of Israel by some nations. It's not anything that you or I might could predict based on the newspapers. He says it's with a shout. I think that shout is the command of God. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the time, but only the Father who's in heaven. I think one day the Father will say, it's time. And Jesus will descend from heaven. That sound will be accompanied by the voice of an archangel. Come on, angels. It's time. It'll be a trumpet blast of God summoning the nations of earth to attention. Bum, bum, bum. The king. And all flesh will see him, Isaiah says. All the nations will mourn because he's coming in judgment. And yet... There's hope. Because coming with Him in the clouds aren't just the angel armies, but the souls of every Christian who's ever died. And as they come from heaven, their bodies will be raised, resurrected to be united. And then the angels, He says, will gather the elect. They'll gather the church from every corner of the globe in China and the jungles and America and all over the world, wherever a Christian is found. They'll be gathered together and caught up into the clouds in the air. And they'll meet Jesus there so that everybody will know these are, this is Jesus. These are his angels and these are his people. And Paul says, then we will be with the Lord forever. I wish I knew more details about what that day will be like and what the kingdom Jesus sets up is going to look like. But Paul just stops. It's like once he finally gets to the main deal... And so we'll always be with the Lord. It's like nothing else matters. It's God with us and us with God forever and ever and ever. And I love this image of the people of God being caught up in the air to meet Jesus. Um, sometimes it's called a rapture, and it's certainly one of the more confusing elements of biblical eschatology. People want to debate at what point in the tribulation does the rapture happen? Who gets taken away? And, and we'll get into all the details of that. But it's important for you to know that the main image wouldn't have been all that confusing to the Thessalonians. Because Paul uses a word that they were familiar with. It's a word parousia, which means presence as opposed to absence. And it described an event that often happened in the ancient world when a king or an emperor would visit a city or a colony or a territory that was usually far flung off away from the center of power. And he would dignify that place by his presence. Josephus, the historian, tells us about the day when the emperor Vespasian returned to Rome after he'd struck down the Jewish rebellion in AD 66. And all the people of Rome went outside the city gates to meet him. Josephus says, when he was reported to be approaching the whole remaining population of the city with wives and children, 
were waiting on the roadsides to receive him. And each group as he passed gave vent to all manner of cries, hailing him as the benefactor, the savior, the only true emperor of Rome. Must have been like the day in June of 1910 when the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, arrived in New York Harbor. He had <laughs> left America after his final term as president and he'd gone to Africa on a year-long expedition. And he'd made this wide circuit through Europe until he caught a steamship out of England and came across to be received by his friends and fans in New York. This is his hometown. And on June 18th, after months, literally months of preparation, paid for by J.D. Rockefeller and like the biggest event of the year, after months of preparation, his boat glides into New York Harbor. And he's greeted by a fleet of ships, naval vessels, merchant ships. They come into Battery Park on the very southernmost tip of Manhattan. Some of y'all have probably stood there and looked across New York Harbor to see the Statue of Liberty. 100,000 people were gathered at Battery Park to hear Teddy Roosevelt give an address. And after he did that at about 11 o'clock in the morning, he got into an open-air carriage. And they began a five-mile parade up Broadway all the way to Fifth Avenue. Along the way, the sidewalks were jam-packed with people. They estimated a million people lined the parade route to greet Teddy Roosevelt. The New York Times reported about the day. They said, one could see that he enjoyed every moment of the triumphal progress. And when the people saw that he enjoyed their cheers, they cheered all the louder. You know, it's going to be like that when Jesus comes back. You think they celebrated when Vespasian rolled into Rome? And when Teddy rolled into New York, what's it going to be like when every Christian is up in the air with Jesus? You think we're going to be quiet? You think we're going to be a little shy to sing, Eric? Well, I don't want people to hear my voice. <laughs> no, I think you are going to be belting the songs that you've learned your whole life. You're going to be praising. You're going to say, hey, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive all glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your word they were made and existed. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2. That he's bestowed on him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's going to be crazy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. There's hope for people who have confidence in Christ's return. But no matter what life throws at us, no matter how deep and dark the hole we find ourselves in, a day's coming. When the whole world will see, every eye will behold, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And Jesus himself taught us to expect this. But there's one final source of the confidence Paul wants us to have. And we've seen the resurrection of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, but finally we get to the church of Jesus. And that's what Paul says in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road. 
It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to bring it out of theory and abstract doctrinal facts and into the practical human experience where you look at someone and encourage them with these words. I think Paul had to know that the lingering unbelief and the fear of death that was plaguing their hearts and their minds, that was causing them to grieve as those who had no hope, was going to have to be transformed. And the men and women in the grip of grief were going to be unable to bring themselves out of it on their own. He knew they needed some people around them grabbing them by the hand, putting their arms around their shoulders and comforting and encouraging them with these words. Paul knew that in the fog of grief, the only thing that was going to comfort a sorrowing widow or broken-hearted father was the church's confession that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's the only thing. I need somebody else to say that because right now I'm struggling. I need somebody else to remind me of the truth that my Lord Jesus has taught me to believe because I'm in this mess, I'm in this hole, and I just don't know that I can bring myself to see it. This is the hope-inducing battle cry that Paul says is able to give us hope for the future. To say with him, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. That, yeah, this hurts. This is tragic. This is terrible. But God has something in store for those who love him and who are waiting for him and who long for his appearing. He can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Church family, without a community of friends who are going to encourage us with these words when our hearts are downcast, when we're crushed, when our bones feel broken and out of joint in our bodies, we'll never know the hope that Jesus died to give us. But if we are connected to a church family, if we do have Christian friends who share with us the hope of Christ's return, then we can trust them to remind us and encourage us. It's like what the admirable William McRaven said in his famous graduation speech about his final week in Navy SEAL training. He and his training team had suffered some disciplinary infractions, and the instructors had forced them to lay in the mud and water overnight. It's cold there on the beach. They're covered in slimy mud. He said everything within him said, no matter how far I've come, I'm ready to quit. Just at that moment, the instructor said, hey, boys, we know you're tired. You still got eight hours to go. We'll make a deal with you. If five of you quit, you can all go inside. Just five of you. Just five of you quit. The rest of you can go inside and get warm. The Admiral said that in that moment, 
he was seriously considering bailing on his training, giving up his dream of becoming a SEAL. But as that question lingered, they heard a voice of one of the men crying out, singing a song. And another man joined in until finally all the men covered in cold and slimy mud from head to toe were singing at the top of their lungs. And he said that the hope instilled by those songs got them through the night. I was listening to you sing earlier. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. Where do you get that kind of hope? Not to look cold, slimy mud in the face, but to look death itself. That's the day you're talking about. On that day when I draw my final breath, when my life is over, where do you get hope to say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? It's not the wild speculations of an unhinged Bible teacher. It's not the promise of pleasure and possessions here on earth. It's hope anchored to the bedrock of Jesus' second coming because when you're confident in Jesus' second coming, you can face life's toughest challenges with hope. So church family, this morning, please remember that when you face trials or tragedy, Jesus died and rose again. And he's promised to give you that same life. When you doubt God's plans, remember Jesus' teaching that God has a plan. He's got a day fixed when Jesus will return and judge his enemies and establish his eternal kingdom. And you got a place there. Your name is in his book. And nothing can pluck you from his hand. You are safe and secure in him. And when you're discouraged by the pressures of life, listen to the voice of people around you singing. Remember hope.